Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly. And as always during the show, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. Now, after what most football observers in this country would describe as one of the most dire weeks in recent memory, with first the Matildas, favourites to win the Women's Asian Cup, getting knocked out at the quarterfinal stage by South Korea, then the Socceroos, unable to secure three critical points against a weakened Oman. A bright spot, though, emerged to cheer us all a little when Ange Postacoglu did what he'd promised and took Celtic to the top of the Scottish Premiership ladder in the best possible style with a thrilling old firm derby win over Rangers in front of a jubilant home crowd at Celtic Park. We'll cover the entire roller coaster on this week's show as we unpack, and we will unpack much of the rest of what's gone in the, the football world this week. But first up, last time we spoke to Paul Wade, it was after the November draw against Saudi Arabia. Harry Sutar had snapped his ATL at ACL at Parramatta Stadium as Australia couldn't find a way to score at home against Saudi Arabia. But our fate was in our own hands two months later, and that fate is gradually slipping from our grasp as the qualifying doomsday scenario emerges. We'll dissect how it's come to this and whether Graham Arnold's men can pull a rabbit out of a hat and qualify for our fifth straight World Cup. Willem will go through all the Matildas and Socceroos theme from Clubland uh, in the middle before we talk to Joey Lynch. We'll attempt to analyse just how the Matildas managed to get beaten as favourites in the first knockout stage of a tournament they were expected to win. Joey writes some magnificent copy for The Guardian and also the ESPN. Looking forward to having a chat to him about how Tony Gustafsson can get the squad to regroup ahead of next year's home World Cup. And of course, we'll wrap it up with our extended stoppage time with Derek Edge. Um, I guess if you had had two alternate scenarios, one magnificent and one not so much, um, the latter would have been the one that you would have talked about um, for the past week uh, for the Matildas and Socceroos. Well, hello, Rob. Hello, Willem. Hello to all the listeners right around Australia and around the world, wherever you are listening to Box the Box on your favourite podcast platform. Well, last week we were grinning. <laughs> this week we're lamenting lost opportunities. And that is football. You've got to take the wins uh, along with the losses and the draws and the uh, expectations not being met. And it's easy to get down in the dumps. And uh, I must admit, I've been a bit flat in the latter part of this week, especially after the, uh, the Socceroos let a, uh, a game-winning lead slip in the last uh, few minutes in Muscat. We all know how difficult it is in Asia to win on the road. That would have been very handy, but it's not all over yet, Rob. Um, I'm still optimistic about um, even a playoff path. Uh, there's a long way to go in this campaign for Australia. I do think we do have the, um, the playing group that can uh, find a way through what's going to be a difficult path. But, yeah, look, you know, there's still a lot to look forward to, albeit we're feeling a bit sick and sorry for ourselves. And in terms of the Matildas, um, I'm a little, little bit more philosophical about that. Uh, um, listeners to the show will know that I follow it closely. And, you know, we've only beaten America once in 35-odd uh, times we've played them. And we've only ever beaten one European team at any reasonable tournament. So uh, on the back of that, we've got a long way to go. And three teams were going to win the tournament, um, either Japan, South Korea and Australia. And just the quirk of the draw meant we... South Korea and it was a close game and we could have won 
um, their star scored a goal, our, score, our star missed three. So I think there's a, a, a lot to take out of all of what's happened in the last week, but let's not to get down in the dumps. Uh, the sun comes up and we move on. Yeah, well, we do. Um, it's uh, it's sport after all, but uh, that's what we talk about on this show. So uh, uh, we're going to try and sort of find a way to, to, to plot uh, a positive and happy ending, no matter what happens. Willem, you've got it all for us, mate. Um, why don't you get the ball rolling? I do, Rob. Great to be back for another week. And I want to start with the Socceroos. We all know the chances now of automatic World Cup qualification are slim. We've dropped another two points in a two-all draw with Oman. Twice, Australia looked comfortable in the lead, I thought, and twice they let it slip the second time at the death as Fran Karacic conceded a penalty. Uh, our automatic qualification now hinges on beating Japan in Sydney and then taking something from the trip to Saudi Arabia in March. It is looking more likely that it will be the playoffs, though, and it's probably going to be the UAE in third uh, in the other group first up. And we know what happened last time we played them. Uh, last time at a major tournament, obviously bowing out of the 2019 Asian Cup. Uh, Michael, there's been a lot of introspection, a lot of chat amongst the Australian football public over the last week. And one thing that I don't quite agree with is that we don't have the cattle. Uh, I often think back to the 2014 World Cup is probably the poorest squad we have. But uh, even then, that had some pretty good players going around. I think this group's highly capable. I just think if you look at the fact that there were two points on the chi- uh, on the table against China that we dropped, uh, another two here, and of course, the one against Japan, uh, which gave Japan a further two points, that would have given us uh, a six or seven point swing. It's just been just sloppy in closing stages, haven't been able to play a full 90. Yeah, I'm with you. The, the playing squad, it, it, look, it lacks depth. Um, we don't have as many players playing regularly in Europe as we once did, and I think um, that's hurt us a couple of times. And we do have two very good frontliners in Tom Rogic and Aaron Moy, and if they're missing at the same time, we do um, lose a, a, a lot of um, potential, put it that way. Uh, so I don't disagree with what you said. Um, however, you know, um, we're not blessed with the talent that we once had, and that's obvious. However, this group has proven it can score enough goals um, if they can um, concentrate on uh, rectifying those momentary lapses that uh, concede uh, easy goals. Then uh, you know we'd, we'd be in a strong qualifying position, wouldn't we, Alan? We would. Just to wrap the rest of the qualifiers before we get on to the Matildas, South Korea are headed for a 10th consecutive World Cup after sealing their qualification with a 2-0 win over Syria, and Iran will join them after defeating the UAE 1-0. The UAE remain three points clear in third after the contenders for that position, Iraq and Lebanon, uh, nullified each other with a draw, so that didn't really help either Iraq or Lebanon. In Group B, our group, Japan, returned to something like their best with a comfortable 2-0 win over Saudi Arabia, while Vietnam picked up their first points of the round with a 3-1 win to China. Uh, Rob, were you surprised in the slightest that the uh, our friends in Saudi Arabia didn't feel like doing us much of a favour? Well, I guess it was uh, it was in Japan, and um, and they they were good against Australia insofar as a defensive unit was concerned, and uh, and and while they couldn't break us down, we couldn't get past them. So uh, now, look, I think they did the best that they could. Um, they they weren't mathematically qualified, so I, I don't think that there was anything other than their best effort. I think it speaks more to uh, to Japan playing at home and the fact that uh, you know they stumbled at the beginning and and. Fortunately for them, they're finding their form at the right time of qualifying, whereas we did it the other way around and, you know, not working out so well for us. The Matildas have suffered the indignity of relying on hosting rights to qualify for the World Cup after exiting the Asian Cup at the quarterfinal stage. Sam Kerr and co spurned a number of chances before Ji Soyun scored the game's only goal on 87 minutes. 
We're going to have a chat to Joey Lynch shortly. But, Rob, it's been a delicate balance in these tournaments, the Olympics and now the uh, the Women's Asian Cup, and trying to win and also trying to set the side up for uh, the 2023 World Cup. Uh, I think Gustafsson was probably didn't quite get the balance right at the Olympics. Maybe people could, uh, could spare him that. But this, I don't think, was a matter of not getting the balance right in terms of looking forward and looking uh, to the immediate future. But I think it's probably just going to be put down as a pretty embarrassing exit. Where do you think he's at and where do you think the squad's at before we chat to Joey? In a, an alternate universe, we, um, we we score in those early chances. We're talking about uh, playing a, a minnow in a semi-final, and then in this week's show, we're we're planning for a, a final against Japan. And and you know, we, it could easily have happened. That universe doesn't exist. We didn't take our early chances. Uh, whilst we were composed in the first half, um, South Korea worked their way into the game. They had a very um, clever game style. Colin Bell, their uh, their uh, coach, uh, described the style that he saw as as reflective of the U.S. national women's side. Interpret into that what you will. We certainly don't have the, the depth that they do, uh, um, or the experience and the success at the top level. Uh, my biggest concern was the fact that um, that for uh, a, a country that has so many players playing at the professional level and have done for several years now, that rather than embrace the pressure late in the game, uh, they panicked and um, and they didn't rise to the occasion. And uh, and it, and it was clear. And sadly, it was. Uh, um, it was uh, writ large in, in Sam Kerr's inability to put the ball in the back of the net, um, scuffing it on a couple of occasions when uh, you know she's uh, you know universally acclaimed as one of the best players in the world. So yeah, that's my uh, sort of two cents worth. And to the uh, Asian Cup, now that Australia are out of it, everyone else is having a, a fantastic time because Japan, China, South Korea, and the Philippines have become the first nations to qualify for that World Cup next year alongside, of course, the hosts. Uh, Vietnam, Chinese Taipei, and Thailand were the sides that exited alongside the Matildas at the quarterfinal stage. So they're playing a single-round Robin competition for the final guaranteed slot. The other two will head to the Inter-Confederation playoffs. So, Rob, just a, a comment on Alan Stachich. Uh, you can't deny his managerial abilities. And they've been there for a little while. He's uh, attracted plenty of players to come and get behind the cause and play for the Malditas, as they're known. Uh, and he is not going to miss the party at the World Cup next year. No, no way in the world. It's a, it's a massive story and he deserves uh, the, the credit where it's due. Uh, he um, was probably uh, responsible for, for disrupting the uh, the Matilda's own uh, progression through the group stage with uh, an incredible defensive effort. But uh, to go to a, a country that's passionate about football, it's a, I mean, Edge is probably the person to answer this question better than I am because, uh, you know, the Philippines, as much as they love football, they're, uh, they're a minnow uh, to, to do what he's done in such a short period of time. It's, uh, it's uh, amazing. It's a massive story. Uh, look, let's not uh, uh, hide behind the uh, culture wars in Australian women's football. What he and the rest of the Philippines organisation has done is not only, you know, make the semi-finals in the tournament, they've qualified for the World Cup. And a little side note for me, um, working in the Middle East recently, um, people who've been to, you know, places like uh, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia will note that a big proportion of the service staff are Filipinos. And uh, mm. I was uh, at the hotel I was staying um, in Dubai uh, during the, the, the tournament. And um, there's a lot of Filipino staff, both men and women, and they all knew about it. They all knew about it. And when I spoke to them about it, they had big grins and smiles and um, mm. it's made mm. a big impact uh, for Filipino people right around the world. So congratulations mm. to everyone. Oh, they're beautiful. In that. Beautiful people. They are beautiful. They were so happy and... Um, 
they uh, uh, some of them in the hotel that I was staying at were wearing Filipino badges to mm. celebrate the achievement. They all knew that the women's team had made the World Cup and that it was a major breakthrough for the sport yeah. in the Philippines. And a final one before we chat Socceroos with Paul Wade. Celtic have climbed to the top of the Scottish Premiership with a scintillating old firm derby win over Rangers, which saw the very best of Ange Postecoglou's football. Celtic were relentless in the first half as Rio Hatati scored twice before setting up a third for Lille Abada. 24 games into the 33-game season, Celtic sit a point clear of Rangers with Hearts in third. Michael, another very famous day in the Postecoglou story. Uh, people feel a lot of emotions watching his sides play football, but one you never feel is surprise. We've seen it all before. All the hallmarks are there the pressing, the, uh, the the willingness to quick get the ball at the throw-in and get it back on the deck, we're going to go again. Uh, and he, he's done it again with another one of his recruits. Uh, it's just been really gone from strength to strength. What a fantastic um, spearhead for Australian football and coaches, uh, for you know Australian coaches in Europe he's going to be. And look, part of me says that as much as he's enjoying um, this experience with Celtic, and if they go all the way, you know, there's still a little way to go, isn't there? But you'd have to say that they've got the momentum now. But um, I just think that this uh, journey for Ange is going to end in a big league with a big club. Mm. And uh, and I, I just sense that this is only the beginning of uh, what's going to be an incredible sort of five, six, seven, eight years ahead of him. Yeah, Premier League within two years, Rob. We will talk to Paul Waite in a moment. Um, we're going to talk Socceroos, uh, uh, just what happened um, against Oman, how it, um, it all uh, came to uh, a bit of a disastrous conclusion uh, there with that penalty against um, Oman with uh, Frank Karasic and uh, all the rest of it. Can we survive? Can we uh, get through? Paul Wade will tell us after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal Yes, this is Box to Box, and as we said off the top during the show this week, we're going to analyse both the Socceroos and Matilda's, uh, well, very difficult weeks. Um, but uh, we're going to kick off with the Socceroos, the disappointing result against Oman. As uh, we all now know, we had our fate in our own hands, but it's gradually slipping as the qualifying doomsday scenario slowly emerges. And uh, the last time we spoke to Paul Wade was after the November draw um, against Saudi Arabia. At this time, things are very, very different. Wadey, how are you? Any better, I'd need a twin. <laughs> How's that? I'm just trying to cheer you up now because oh, it can be miserable if we think, uh, you know, if we think what it'd be like if we qualified straight away, but it's not the end of the world, is it? No, it's not. Um, we had this um, mirage of 11 straight wins against, you know, relatively uh, or relative football minnows in the world game. But yeah. then we started to hit the, 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 the bumps when we played what are now the two top teams in, in the group and uh, it hasn't straightened out ever since. So um, what's your assessment of, of the Oman game? Did, did we stuff it up, mate? There's some results that you just scratch your head at and go, really? I can't believe we won or we lost that game. I can't play. I can't believe we played so well and so crap. It's so confusing to play, be a footballer, to prepare for a game for so long and then to do all the right things, eating the right things, training three nights a week, going to bed 10 o'clock the night before a game. You get up, you go for a bit of a walk, you're feeling good, you hit the ground. Last week you were man of the match. This week... You got dragged after 45 minutes. It is just, I know, I don't want to gloss over um, what it is, uh, what, the situation we're in, but I, I do want to make the point that, you know, 
it's not as if the boys went out there and didn't do the right thing as far as not being good or not trying. It's not as if Graham Arnold said, oh, I'm going to stuff this up and put McLaren up front on his own. And um, Yeah, it's football. I guess basically that's what I'm saying. It's football. It's life. It changes. The only thing that uh, the only thing that changes, well, well, nothing changes, does it? Really, everything uh, goes round in circles at times. Wadey, the defence. Um, we've conceded six goals, but I must admit, when I look back through the statistics, and they don't obviously tell the whole picture, but we've not had a lot of shots against us in this third phase of qualifying. Um, yet we leaked six goals and, um, you know, the China game, I, w- I was at the China game in, in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates and, you know, we, you know, they had like three shots at goal and scored one of them and obviously we get away with a draw. I mean, yeah. is it lapses in concentration? Is it just bad luck or is it something that needs to be unpacked and looked at and looked at and looked at? Yeah, I think that's that's the point, but not necessarily. Well, I mean, it does have to be looked at as far as the Socceroos today go. But yeah, I was I was joking with somebody the other day about how you know the next time I see a council worker put a rope in front of the goal, saying "keep out of the goal mouth," I tell you what, they should be drawn and quartered. I think that's our biggest problem. There's so much in the build up of the game, the, the patterns of play, and all that, and it needs to be done. And you need to be physically fit and mentally strong but at the end of the day when you look at it all it takes is to pass the ball past the keeper to score a goal and win a game you know what I mean when it all comes down to it you just pass the ball past the keeper so you can have all the best tactics in the world and get beat one nil but you had four chances that seems like the way it is for us just get these kids to score goals put a net up so they know what it feels like to score a goal. So come the weekend, it won't be oh, panic stations right when he's just about to strike the ball. You know, I mean, that's a simplified way of looking at it. But it's a simple game, boys. It really is. Life's not that complicated. Sometimes I think we do make it complicated. We're looking for things that are not there, and we shouldn't do that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. What about... um? The mindset going into the two games against Japan and Saudi Arabia, you know, the, the, the guys looked um, extremely dejected after the draw against Oman and uh, my information out of the camp was that they are feeling it particularly uh, more so because we were leading so late in the game. Um, you know, what about the mental approach to these next two games? It's, uh, you know, they are huge matches in the in the context of this playing group and the the core players that have been in through the whole campaign. Uh, they go back to their clubs now. You know, how are they feeling? Um, you know, what do you, th- you put yourself in their shoes? You've been there, done that. Mm. Um, you know, how do they work through the next month in their club and then, you know, return for what's probably, to be honest, against Japan, the biggest game of their international careers? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, once every four years, and this is the biggest game in four years. When you look at, I remember Graham Arnold, uh, Robbie Slater, um, all the Aurelio Vidmar, Tony Vidmar. We all got beat 1-0 by Argentina over there. And I remember some of the boys were in tears because they knew that that was their last shot at having a uh, going to the World Cup. So it was really emotional. We were exhausted, but we were emotional as well. And then going back into that dressing room, you sat down in front of where your gear was hung up and you did not look up 
and you did not say a word because no matter what you said or did, it wasn't funny. And then, I mean, the um, the physios and the doctor, Pedro Ruz would walk around and just quietly whisper, are you all right, Paul? Are you doing this? And come over here and we'll take that strapping off. But that's the, the little sounds that you hear. Nobody else says a word. And when I heard Graham Arnold on that interview say the, um, the dressing room was dead silent, I know exactly how they feel because they know. They know that really hurt. They, they would have been talking maybe when they got to dinner, maybe when they got back to the hotel and they'd gone back to their room and they'd be chatting with their roommate, but maybe the conversations start with dinner. Well, I know exactly what it is. If you're feeling like that, then you care and they know how serious this is. So then I don't think they're playing for their own spot. They're playing for our spot at the World Cup and that's a good thing. Have we been spoiled over the last... 20 years with four consecutive appearances in, in the World Cups. Is this the, the normal that we have to accept? That Are we just good enough at our best to qualify? Um, and, and should we just accept that the, the likes of Saudi Arabia, that Japan, you know, they're throwing fortunes into their match, their, uh, their programs, that they, uh, they're clearly um, nations that, uh, that you know, we, we, we can't uh, uh, expect to, to just go out there and, and knock off um, even at our very best. Yeah, we have no, to be our best. yeah, we do. There is no doubt about that. We have to be our best at this level. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Asia, South America, Oceania, you do have to be your very, very best. And as much as you point the finger or anyone points the finger at the quality of the players and comparing them with the golden generation, the fact is that you don't have to be the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or the most mentally tough. You just have to be clever to win a football match. And that's the beauty of football. You just have to be clever. You know, some of the minnows, I remember the, was it uh, Fiji beat the Socceroos 1-0 over there. And I think most of them played rugby for their country as well as football. Uh, we beat Yugoslavia at the Olympic Games in 1988. They were supposed to win the world, uh, the gold medal you don't have to be the best. You just have to be very clever and your best. And I think sometimes we get carried away with that golden generation. Um, no, honestly, those players, if they play their best, and their, their best would be uh, moments in the game that they don't give the ball away, uh, moments in the game where they tap the ball over the line. If those key moments... Um, just kept coming over and over again. It doesn't matter what the golden generation did. Um, you can't compare them. I don't think you can compare results, never mind players. I agree with you, Paul. I think this group is good enough and you can't compare them to the golden generation. I mean, these guys have been in positions to take a further five or six points uh, in matches and they've just let them slip. So what is it in these moments that has seen them uh, let matches slip? Is it mental? Is it starting to stack up on them that there has been a couple of slips and it continues to mount? Is it physical. I mean, we saw Fran Karacic look a little bit tired. I was probably surprised he was still on the park. He hasn't been playing a lot with his club. What is it in these key moments that you think he's, he's letting us down? Yeah, I feel I feel a bit for any international coach when you consider they only have them three days before a game and they've got to bring them into camp, get them on the same wavelength. But more importantly for Graham Arnold, he's got them coming a long way, a lot longer. Than, and I'm saying this all over again. We've heard it a million times, but it's a fact. He's got to find out who's playing well, what position they're playing for their club. Are they injured? Are they fit? 
He's got to find so much out in three days. So to say that um, Karacic was looking a bit fatigued, he was looking at, yeah, I totally agree with you, but, you know, it's easy for us to look from here. But when you're a footballer and when you're down there and when you didn't get a good night's sleep last night because you were still getting over um, the, the jet lag, you do at times come off a little bit uh, weary looking. So, yeah, there are... we. I just don't want everyone to start thinking and, and painting pictures of gloom and doom. This is football. We are still in this competition. If we beat the beat Japan, we've scored 15 goals. Having said all those chances that we didn't score, we've scored 15 and conceded six. Japan have scored nine and conceded three. So, you know, they're very conservative in the way they are. Uh, attack and defend they're solid at both ends but if we can express ourselves like those stats 15 and 6 show then i can't see any reason no matter how tired karacic is that we can get a result and just a final question not so much on the team but around the discourse uh, around the side at the moment there's a, a strange school of thought maybe it's a little bit defeatist maybe sort of prepping for doomsday that maybe missing the world cup is what the socceroos and australian football needs to sort of generate maybe the root and branch introspection uh as a player of the era who unfortunately wasn't reaching world cups where does that sort of discussion sit with you i don't think we have to not qualify for the world cup to get woken up I can't imagine one of those players going out there thinking, well, we're going to go to the World Cup and uh, and I don't care. And all right, I'm being a bit sarcastic there. But um, no, we want to go to the World Cup every time. They want to go to the World Cup every time. Our, our kids doing the SAT program, skills acquisition programs, skills acquisition phase, they want to go to the World Cup too. Nobody needs a kick up the backside to uh, to be better than they think they are. And certainly not this group because having, what, won 11 in a row, yep. created a new record worldwide. Nobody's ever won 11 in a row in one campaign. We get beat by Japan and then we draw two, win one and draw another one and all of a sudden the world's coming to an end. It's not. It really isn't. We don't need to kick up the backside. The players are or will be in a good frame of mind. Um, I just hope Graham Arnold believes, and I'm sure he does else he wouldn't be there, believes that they can. Ask Arnie what it was like to play for Sydney Croatia against South Melbourne Ellis. That was World War Three, when we were battering them 2-0 and they wouldn't lie down and came back and beat us 3-2. That is the passion that Graham Arnold will be uh, coaching with. And speaking of Arnie, um, is it all or nothing for, for Arnie? Do you think he'll survive um, as the national coach if Australia don't qualify? No. But then again, no quote, no coach does. You look at the uh, the NSL, the A-League. You could win the league and get the sack in the next year, season. No, no, I don't. It'd be great if he does. He'd love it. I'm sure he would. He's enjoying himself. But uh, one thing he's guaranteed, he's going to get sacked or he's going to walk away. And I think he'll get sacked before he walks away. But, it, uh, yeah, that's inevitable. He accepts that. We'd, we've, I feel gutted for him, but he, he's been around for a long time. He knows the pressures that go along with it. Um, we can't all be Ange Postacoglu's, can we? <laughs> exactly, mate. We've been talking about um, that amazing result. Uh, um, hey, Rob. Yeah, hey, Rob. I've just said we've just had the uh, thirteen minutes injection of poor Wade's optimism. I feel better. 
I feel better. <laughs> the, weight the, the weight of the world is lifted yeah. off me. Soccer is going to beat Japan, and we're going to yes. get better and do the business over there. And the yes. house of sword will collapse. Absolutely. So, <laughs> Where were they? Weren't, weren't they? They lost two out of their first three games, didn't they? Yeah. Saudi Arabia and Oman. And they won everything. And they've won everything. Yeah, you're right. Wadey, thanks again for joining us, mate. Uh, oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, we just love talking football with you. It's uh, a pleasure. I, I want to go to Uruguay again anyway, so it doesn't really matter. I've got one more page in my uh, passport that says you could go to Uruguay and play the fifth best team in South America. Oh, it's going to be in Qatar. So, Michael, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's a one. It's a Wadey, It's a one yeah. game. Uh, yeah. one game cup game in Qatar in June in an yeah. air conditioned stadium. Yes, right, against wait. Uruguay. What do you reckon? Yeah. Well, let's yeah. enjoy this. Peru. What about Peru? Peru. Why don't we go? To, why don't we have Peru? Yeah. We'll mix <laughs> well, it up a little bit. <laughs> well, thanks, Wadey, mate. Um, we'll uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again when this. Yes, when I'm this looking forward to it. Day, the, 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 the the magical scenario happens. Then. <laughs> Keep up the good work, boys. Love it. See ya. Thanks, mate. Paul Wade on Box to Box. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas next. What's happening? Players injured, club land, all the rest of it. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yeah. This is box to box, and there's something about Wadey. He just uh, he just lifts you up, doesn't he? Even when things are not going so well, as a bloke who's uh, lived the professional careers, played at the peak against the best, uh, he still puts it into perspective. And uh, he's just a good bloke, just a lot of fun to talk to. Um, we are going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas in a moment, but before we do, our very good friends at Chemist Warehouse, you'll always get the biggest brands at the lowest prices. This week, you'll save on Colgate Sensitive Pro Relief Toothpaste. Do you have sensitive teeth? Or buy for $4.99, gram range. Voost Magnesium if you need a bit of a pep-up. Multivitamin, all vitamin C. 60 effervescent tablets for $9.99 each. Do you need a few of those uh, in your travels? Uh, some Yes, and Melrose Organics Essential Greens, 200 grams, 19.99. And while you're shopping, take a look at the huge savings on Chemist Warehouse range of beauty and cosmetic products. This for men and women, boys. So, so make sure you you know your face cream and uh, you want to look after yourself. The ladies get looked after with 50% off the Rimmel and Maybelline cosmetic range, 30% off the Glam by Manicure Lash range, and a huge half price off the Sally Hansen and Saint-Tropez tanning range. You'll find those and more specials in store and online at Chemist Warehouse, gentlemen, where the lowest savings, the great savings, are every single day. I certainly are, Rob. Let's have a look at Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. And with the Qatar World Cup and the 2023 Men's Asian Cup in China all within the next 12 months, there really is no better time to join the Green and Gold Army. It's as easy as signing up to the mailing list at ggatravel.com.au to make sure you're among the first to know when travel packages go on sale. It's going to be a very short Socceroos and Matilda Central today with uh, just about every player of note in, uh, in the national camps. But there were a couple in Clubland. First of those was Mas Luongo, who earned Man of the Match honours for Sheffield Wednesday in their win over Ipswich Town, which saw the papers deem him far too good for this league. He was then, Michael, absent from their 2-0 win over Morecambe, and the fans on Twitter went feral at the prospect of another injury. Fortunately, Darren Moore, the manager there, just uh, confirmed that it was a rest. Yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> because Mass, Mass has had so many little uh, hiccups in uh, his career of recent dates. He doesn't need anyone, another one. We just want him to keep racking up the games and... Uh, Get uh, you know more more 
uh, more uh, time under his belt and uh, hopefully soon enough he'll be back in the reckoning for the Socceroos because uh, he'd be a handy player to have at full fitness, wouldn't he, Will? He would, certainly. And another couple of guys who could well find themselves in camp sooner rather than later are Cam Devlin and Nathaniel Atkinson, who have continued to get stuck in for hearts. Atkinson won man of the match honours in their 2-0 win over Motherwell. The pair also started in the next match in the Edinburgh Derby, which saw a nil-all draw that keeps Hibbs third. And Joel King's been sold to Danish club Odense BK uh, just a couple of days after that magnificent match. Uh, I was a little bit sceptical when I saw him on the team sheet for uh, the clash against Vietnam, but he was very, very solid. Uh, so all the best to Joel hitting the ground running over in Europe. Uh, let's cut straight to the A-Leagues, guys. It's been a, a huge week, really. Uh, Western Sydney, Rob, Carl Robinson. He lasted probably a month longer than you, myself, Michael, and uh, Marco Monteverde th- thought he would. But in the end, 10 wins in 33 games. Uh, wasn't going to cut the muster. In comes Mark Rudan until the end of the season. And then immediately, I thought the Wanderers looked much hungrier, much lighter in the front half against an underman glory and uh, picked up a 1-0 win. Yeah, it was uh, a great result and just the, the result they needed. Admittedly, Perth uh, uh, hard up against it with um, the, the need to, to have to travel, but uh, it, it gets them automatically up to to uh, eighth spot on the ladder. So it just shows you what three points will do. And, uh, you know, I wonder what's next for Carl Robertson. I mean, Ed, you'd be... The big uh, move up to eighth spot. Death row. Well, it, it is from well, where, where were they? Three points before they were, they were uh, they were second last. So from eleventh to eighth, that's a big move, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, eleventh to eighth, yeah, it's it's in the right direction at least. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I still think this club's got a lot of a lot of questions to answer. You know, um, I think the leadership, uh, CEO, football director, that sort of stuff, which Melbourne Victory were really struggling from. Um, I don't know whether changing the coach is going to do yep. what the fans want but you know uh, this club you know this club is a very important uh, foundation stone for the a-leagues and they want to get themselves sorted out pretty quickly mm. because the fans have been not um drifting from them they've been escaping at a rate of knots yeah in all seriousness the issue with robinson uh it wasn't personal because we've seen Gombau and Marcus Babel suffer the exact same fate. So you look at that and you think that, yes, it is a maybe a Paul Litter or a Gavin Costello or administrative problem. Uh, Robinson, however, made himself a pretty easy target uh, talking a big game and uh, just couldn't back it up. So maybe it would have been better if he kept his head down rather than opening his mouth, uh, especially through those uh, through those early months. What about John Aloisi, Rob? Is he quietly building his, uh, his A-League redemption? Western United at top, they split the points to all with MacArthur and he's got a young side going. Uh, Theo Harris, Parias, Milanovic has come in in the last little while. Uh, they've had a lot of 1-0 wins and not many people talk about them because they don't have a massive fan base, but there would mm. be a few owing Johnny A an apology if he uh, lifts some silverware at the end of the season. Yeah, well, there's something about Johnny A. I mean, he's got a special place in all football fans' hearts in this country from that magnificent run and uh, the penalty that he scored in the 2005 World Cup qualifier against Uruguay. But but those of us who watched his career while he was uh, in Italy and Spain and uh, and then came, came back to Australia, I mean, he, he's always uh, managed literally his role as a manager with dignity and class um he's a great pundit he's a he's a friendly guy he's a a fellow that uh, i think um you know just sits in that top uh, echelon of, of footballing uh, uh, people in this country and uh, you sort of always wanted him to do well and felt that he just had a bit of bad luck along the way so so to see him on top um they've um they've got a game in hand over victory so uh, you know you'd You'd think that um, that Melbourne Victor will probably um, leapfrog them, but yeah, I'm I'm really pleased to see. Yeah, I don't think he got enough credit for his time at Brisbane, Michael. I thought he was, uh, you know, a couple of goals here or there. He was at the pointy end of the season, had that 
that semi-final against the Wanderers. I think it was 4-5. Uh, had a big hand in Jamie McLaren's career. So, yeah, I think he's uh, I think he's a little bit better than people give him credit for. Uh, what about Melbourne City? They've signed Subasa Endo for the rest of the season. He's played his whole career in the U.S., uh, slightly different career path. He was in the college uh, or at co- sorry in the college system, I should say, with the University of Maryland uh, before he was taken in the 2016 Super Draft by Toronto FC. Uh, he now moves to Melbourne City, but as he comes in, there could be the biggest figure at the club walking out the other way because Paddy Kizanorbo has been linked to a move to Sunderland. Uh, bookies have him up against Neil Warnock. Michael, that'd be a hell of a move. That would be a hell of a move. Yeah. So let's just see what happens on that front. But Melbourne City, um, you know, they've really uh, I thought they brought this player in to help them in the Asian Champions League stuff yep. that's uh, on the on the horizon. The APL have announced their football frenzy for February. We're going to have 60 A-Leagues matches across the men's and women's played in the month, and every adult general admission ticket has been capped at $20. So that is actually mm-hmm. – uh, that, that's that's pretty savvy. That's a point of difference from other codes. That's, that's actually taking care of your fans and putting uh, atmosphere ahead of profit. So good yeah. stuff. All right, well done, boys. Um, that's a, a nice little wrap there. Okay, after the break, we've already talked to Paul Wade about the Socceroos. Uh, Joey Lynch covers the women's game in this country forensically. He knows uh, just went on what went on um, in the India um, that saw South Korea knock off the Matildas and um, and the postmortem has well and truly begun. So we will continue it with Joey after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. Well, it's been uh, Socceroos and Matildas throughout the show so far. We've already discussed um, at some length between uh, the boys on the the show, the Matildas performance to date, but uh, we now have... From ESPN and The Guardian, a man who covers the women's game very, very closely in this country. He knows uh, the details that many experts uh, are unaware of. That is Joey Lynch. How are you, Joey? I'm going very well, thanks. Thanks for having me once again. No, no worries, Joey. And look, uh, I loved your article, your analysis. You, you really break it down. Uh, but uh, the uh, the salient points here are, are really um, all around how the Matildas going into what we uh, read as Tony Gustafsson's uh, much vaunted performance mode. Um, we were able to get knocked out in the first knockout match of a, the tournament where the, the only accepted uh, metric towards uh, success was was the trophy. Um, how, how do you describe that in a nutshell? It has to be considered a failure. And whilst... The Matildas have often had expectations uh, greater than perhaps their capabilities hoisted on them by the media and the general public in this country. Uh, That is a failure that is being measured against the expectations that, uh, as you said, they themselves set heading into this tournament. Tony Gustafsson talked about winning it. The players talked about winning it. Uh, The Federation set the target of winning it. So... The fact that um, it was a quarterfinal exit, the the earliest ever exit Australia has had uh, in this competition since they moved to Asia means that it can't be considered anything less than uh, a failure. Do we have to uh, accept that that we're not good enough? I mean, is this team, despite the volume of, of players that are playing in Europe, um, the fact that we've got one of the best qualified coaches in the world and all of the resources that you could expect, uh, 
has the world caught up and gone past our Australian women's side? I think it's approaching it from the wrong angle. No nation on earth should ever accept that they are not good enough. Every country on this planet in one form or, or another, no matter how rich they are in footballing resources, both talent and material, should never simply accept they are not good enough. They should always be plotting and planning and putting in place uh, you know, manoeuvrings to improve and get better and get to the point where they are the best um, side in the world. I think that needs to be the mindset surrounding the Matildas, not so much an acceptance of we're not good enough, it's a, a, a determination to figure out how do we become good enough and how do we get to the point where we can challenge uh, the best sides in the world. I think it's imperative that 2023, the Women's World Cup that will be in this country, is approached with that mindset just because there is a fear of perhaps not um, living up to external expectations from those that perhaps aren't as aware of the women's footballing landscape around the world and potential ramifications from that should not scare um, football decision makers, uh, coaching staffs, players, anybody involved in the game in this country from attempting to achieve the best that they can. It shouldn't be about accepting anything, I don't think. There's been a lot of, obviously, emotion and, uh, and uh, people who love women's football expressing um, grief at, at, at this result. Um, and there's been a lot of um, pointed uh, commentary towards the coach, but I want to talk about the senior group of players who have been involved in the Asian Cup final loss in 2018 to Japan 1-0, our loss to Norway on penalties at the 2019 Women's World Cup, and then um, the match against Korea last Sunday. So... Kerr, Simon, Van Egmond, Kennedy, Polkinghorne and Ford have all been a part of those games. Uh, is it time to look at that core group um, and consider who potentially could replace them in key positions? You'd probably exclude Samantha Kerr from that for obvious reasons, but I'm just wondering whether the group of senior players that have failed to deliver in those games, in particular the biggest games and I know Sam Kerr would probably want her time again with all of those games, but I'm just wondering how much of the focus should be on the senior group versus the coach. I think it's a matter of just creating competitive tension right across the squad as a whole. Maybe not so much identifying a group of players and moving them on, but more a sense of... Uh, letting senior players know that there is just as much competitive tension for their place in the squad as it is those fringe players. There's been a lot of talk about Tony Gustafsson trying to add depth to this side and build up the talent pool that he can choose from. But I think at the moment, too much has been focused so, more so on finding in a 23-player squad, for example, uh, increasing the talent pool for players that can maybe fill roles 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and so forth. When in reality, in the event that, well, as these as, as sides do need to do before major tournaments, they have to submit 50, 60 players to a federation for pre-registration. Every single player that um, is in that consideration, one through 50, should approach the coming months with the same uh, level of hope that they will be selected, but also the same level of jeopardy, 
knowing that they aren't a guarantee of selection. I think that's what is at the heart of the competitive tension that is needed. It's not so much uh, a matter of looking at Emily Van Engmond, Hayley Rasso, Caitlin Ford, all of these long-time players and moving them on for the sake of moving it on. What needs to happen is that the coaching staff really in the months ahead needs to establish an environment in which they know that if they are not performing well at Clubland, if they are not performing well with the national side, it doesn't matter um, what sort of resume they has, their contract status with the Federation, what um, sort of reputation they have had previously. If there is somebody out there that can do that job better based on current form, that individual will get the place in the squad, will get the place in the team. It's just a matter of rewarding uh, those that do it more so than just setting targets to bring players in or moving players out, in my estimation. And Joey, what does it say about the football community that there was such great shock at this loss? I mean, for me, going into the tournament, there's only ever three teams could win it, Japan, Korea or Australia. The quirk of the draw meant that Korea played Australia in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, head of Samantha Kerr, buried uh, one of one or two of those three very, very gettable chances she had. Um, you know, the dialogue this week would have been completely different. Um, I'm just wondering what you think it says and, you know, the fact that we, um, you know, if you realistically look at that match, you know, on, on another day we could have won it three goals to one or four goals to one uh, or maybe four goals to two. But um, are we, are we, you know getting all upset and steamy about something we don't necessarily need to and that the team may be in good enough shape to have a good assault at 2023 anyway? There's multiple angles to look at that question. One, you say people um, were shocked around it. I think people do have a right to be shocked around it. As I say, um, this was a side talking about winning uh, this whole tournament on paper, the most well-resumed uh, side in it. Um, highest ranked nation, even though we know that the FIFA rankings at some times can be a bit uh, fanciful, to say the least. So there was shock, but it, what your question goes to, it speaks about the narratives that and the real outcome dependency that we have when we are examining football, which isn't restricted to the women's game. It happens with the men's game as well. But if in a hypothetical um, environment in which the Matildas do have a couple of those chances fall their way and they do advance to the semi-final, which let's face it, they almost certainly would have advanced from coming up against um, the Philippines and then moved into the final. The narrative would have completely changed and we would be talking about how this side is in good shape and heading in towards a home Women's World Cup. But they would have been playing the same way. Um, the, the problems in the midfields um, in terms of what well, this one noteness in attack, this bluntness in attack, this lack of creativity in attack, they still would have been playing in that way. Um, but just they would have had a few lucky bounces fall their way um, and advance through to the final. But the narrative would have changed. And I think that is the problem, that too often we are looking at, we are being outcome-focused rather than process-focused. It's the exact same things um, that happens with the Socceroos. During their 11-game winning streak, there were obvious signs that there were problems in the approach that it was they were taking. Once again, maybe it's the Australian football way, bluntness in attack, too much focus on crossing into the boxes, a lack of creativity, or perhaps... Uh, and too big of a focus on a couple of creative players to carry the load for the rest of them. But there wasn't any talk about that because it was a world record 11-game winning streak, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then they play good sides and it falls apart. It's just for the Socceroos, the bouncers haven't gone their way and they've now fallen apart here at the World Cup stage and their narrative change again. The process remains the exact same the entire time. It was the outcome that has clouded our uh, opinion of it. And I think that is the problem when we are examining these sides. We really need to judge them based not off the outcomes of the Asian Cup, in the case of the Matildas, but the processes. Is the way this side is currently playing football, the way that the technical staff at Football Australia, the way that Tony Gustafsson and his staff, the way the players, the players, is the is the footballing process underway in that side what we want um, and is it going in a trajectory that we want heading into the Women's World Cup next year? I think that has to be the big focus. Joey, immediately after the game, Andy Harper seemed to um, finger Sam Kerr for the result. You know, he said she had the game on her boot and she scuffed her opportunity um, or words to those effect. Is it fair to blame Sam for this result, this individual result? No, it's not. Teams teams lose games. Um not players. And for a matter of fact, it teams will play the way that their coaches will set them up, coaches that have been hired to play a certain way by the federation. So teams don't lose. You have to look at the entire process surrounding it. Is there an unhealthy reliance on Sam Kerr to score goals? Probably. Um, but we have to look then at the situation of why is Australia in that position um, that if Sam Kerr has an off day as she did against um, South Korea, that, you know, things, there is no proper plan B. That is not a failure on the part of Sam Kerr that means that she should be blamed for Australia exiting the World Cup. It is, it is a much larger conversation from that. The conversation is, where are our difference makers outside of Sam Kerr? Is the team being structured in a way that allows other difference makers to emerge in the event that Sam Kerr um, is having an off day? Does the way that the team is set up um, and the way that it attacks so often just getting down the channels and whipping balls in um, for the head of Sam Kerr or the chaos of second balls, um, what does that say about us? I think those... Um, need to be the questions about this result more so than what if Sam Kerr, why didn't Sam Kerr score goals, etc. So, Joey, let's assume we are good enough and our aspirations are to be the best in the world, that we're not going to um, define the team by a narrative that suggests that uh, that the rest of the world has taken over Australia and that we were perhaps ahead of uh, of some nations uh, based on the uh, fact that, um, that Australia paid more attention to the women's game, put more resources into it. Uh, and let's say uh, that it's around the management of the squad, the, the structure of the game plan, the, the strategy and the man that's in charge. So, some suggest that Jill Ellis uh, was the was the preferred candidate originally when Tony Gustafsson was uh, originally appointed. Uh, that would appear to be obvious given her success uh, with the US national women's side. But you look back at Tony Gustafsson's own record as uh, the manager in charge of a team. He's done well as an assistant and been there when uh, the, the US national women's side had great success. But as an individual running a club, uh, at Clubland himself, he, he hasn't had great success over the course of his career. Um, is it too late to change? Do we have to stick with him with only 18 months to go? Or is there a discussion to be had about around, say, Joe Montemuro uh, uh, to, to parachute in and replace course hitting style? 
Well, I should predicate my answer by saying that myself on an individual basis, an ideological basis, I don't agree with switching coaches um, in the middle of a World Cup cycle, purely in the sense that I feel as though federations should have to live with the consequences of their own decisions. And if they get the appointment wrong, um, they should have to live with that, see it through and then have uh, judgment fall upon theirs and their coach's head one way or another. But um, federations aren't run on ideology like I can afford to have. It's easy for me to say. So I would imagine if the federation is going to determine that Tony Gustafsson is not the individual uh, to take them to the World Cup and he's to get the Australians over the line and performing really well at that women's um, World Cup, which, let's face it, there needs to be massive improvements in the way that they play um to challenge uh, especially the European sides that will be coming down under to that. They cannot play the way that they are now and expect to challenge um, even potentially mid-tier European sides at the moment. So there does need to be improvement. If the Federation deems that Gustafsson is not the individual to get that improvement out of them over the next 18 months, I would say they have to make the decision and move on him now. They cannot dilly-dally six months, wait for a few more results to come in and then decide because any new coach that comes in will need as much time as possible to familiarise themselves with the current players, the potential players, the landscape, um, gets the side to buy into the style of football that they want them playing because I imagine if Gustafsson is being moved on, it's because the Federation wants to replace him with another individual that plays a different style of football. So that will, will require a betting in period. Um, so it has to happen sooner rather than later, if that is what the Federation uh, decides um, is needed. If not, they just need to keep Gustafsson and they need to um, pretty much just back him to the hilt in making the changes that he made. He's come into a largely established side. Maybe he was working with a few real or imagined restrictions about formations, approach, selections, anything like that. That needs to go out the window. The Federation needs to make it clear that if he is to stay, Gustafsson is our man for 2023 and he has carte blanche to uh, fashion this side as he does so choose. Um, that is the decision that the Federation needs to make. And as I wrote um, in that piece you referenced earlier in The Guardian, whatever decision the Federation needs to make, it needs to be crystal clear with the Australian footballing public why it has made this decision. We have seen the Matildas in the past, the dismissal of Alan Stajic. Um, the Federation was incredibly opaque surrounding that, and we have seen what that has done to the discourse and conversation surrounding this side, the fact that um, the country is, for lack of a better word, still racked in a culture war surrounding the, the Matildas years on from that suggests that the Federation needs to be honest and open in why they act this time around to avoid that. So we can actually talk about the Matildas as a footballing side, um, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, how they're playing, so we don't get caught up in those uh, narratives of outcomes and the like and external factors, and we can just focus on determining which players playing in which manner will deliver the best results for Australia in 2023. Joey, 
you uh, have a way with words and you uh, explain <laughs> yourself very well, mate, and you seem to capture um, the, the prevailing view um, when there's contradictory views around what should be done, what could be done, and um, and, and why it, it, it needs to be done. I think there's one thing that we all agree on is that uh, no matter who's in charge uh, in the next little while, that uh, we, uh, we all hope that uh, they can get this golden generation of women's footballers in this country back on track ahead of next year's World Cup so that we can see the competitive success that that we we all crave and we know that they crave as well. Yeah. So, yeah, Joe, thanks again for coming on, mate. We really appreciate your time. No, thanks very much for having me. No worries, Joey Lynch, uh, ESPN and The Guardian's um, brilliant analyst that he is. Okay, stick around. Stoppage time next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yeah, this is stoppage time. We've thrown the rule book out the window this week because we wanted to have extended conversations with uh, Paul Wade and Joey Lynch about the Socceroos and Matildas respectively. So we're sort of going to do it in stoppage time this week because there's still a heap to talk about. Uh, we've had a, a good chat so far about the... Um, the Celtic performance against Rangers in the in the old firm derby, Celtic on top of the ladder, Ange Postacoglu uh, um, and all the rest of it. But Derek, from the perspective of someone who was born and bred in the UK, who uh, who watches these things closely, who knows uh, just how important that old firm derby is and how much attention it gets paid in, in England, I guess my question is, what's your reaction? And I'm, I'm also interested uh, to ask, how much notice will this get um, in the uh, in the English football discussion? Because you just look at the the, the BBC Sport and, and other publications; it's certainly getting written up as a massive result. This one had a lot of significance because Rangers have been on top of this fixture for a few years now, and uh, you know this is, wasn't just Celtic coming and getting a close fought victory. They absolutely smashed Rangers to bits in this first half, and when that first goal went in from Hitase, uh, their new one of the new Japanese signings, it, it looked like the lights were shaking in the ground. There was like a strobing effect, such as the ferocity of of the of the atmosphere in the ground and of course Ange Postacoglu's come out uh just massively praised as you guys said uh earlier in earlier in the show Rangers of course are you know still kind of coping from the post Steven Gerrard hangover they've appointed uh Giovanni Van Bronckhurst who you know comes into the job probably a little bit like Gerrard really with you know a kind of famous ex-player of of the same generation, but not with a huge deal of management experience or success uh, un un under his belt. And uh, yeah, I think he would have learned a lot, the former Rangers man, uh, now manager, going back to Celtic Park. And what a difference, you know, six months makes. I was virtually writing Ange Postacoglu off uh, when, when he started. I remember scoffing at uh, a comment that Willem made about uh, you know, uh, Celtic going to the top of the league and getting back into the Champions League, and yeah, I've got to, I've got to tip my cap and say I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, yeah, I think uh, there'll be a lot of people looking at what Ange is already achieving uh, up in Scotland, and it really sets up a great second half of the season to see who will win that title. Let's look at uh, at the rest of what's going on in in Europe right now. Um, we had uh, the FA Cup last week; the, the Premier League returns. That's right, and of course the. Uh, Transfer window slammed shut, as they as they say on Sky Sports 
news in the UK. And look, there's a lot of money spent, nearly a billion in the uh, English Premier League alone, which is no mean feat for uh, for uh, for January. Uh, just one reference back to the old firm, of course, Rangers completing what has been described as one of the biggest deals in Scottish history with the um, uh, the, the the signing of Aaron Ramsey, ex-Arsenal. He's been at Juventus struggling with getting into that team and also with injury, of course, that's blighted his career. Rangers not picking up a lot of that salary, but he wasn't in the starting 11 and I bet, I bet they wished he was now. And it will be interesting to see what Aaron Ramsey uh, can do and try and get that that Rangers side to kick again. Uh, obviously, I need to go to Edge on on Arsenal. Uh, no business from Arsenal in this transfer window. We now head into uh, the remainder of the season with just two strikers listed: uh, Lacazette and Enketia. And of course, we've let our ex-captain uh, leave uh, to go to Barcelona. It's fifteen million off the wage bill, but one less striker in the squad. How do you assess this, Edge? Well, I find it odd that um, you know that, that he's shipped out the door. So out the door goes 92 goals in 163 matches. Uh, he scored more goals this year than any other striker in the club. And I understand, I probably think this is more of a mea culpa about, oh, we did a stupid deal on the money we were paying him. And, you know, he's made been made a bit of a scapegoat. So um, I'm uh, incredibly uh, pessimistic about the fact that no one has come in the door, whether they were in the mix for someone and it didn't come off or whether they just decided they want to go with it, they want to go, they want to go. But Derek, I'll ask you the question, have they given up on a top four finish based on their approach to the January transfer window? They certainly haven't improved their chances for a top four finish. I I honestly don't know whether top four was a KPI for Arsenal this season. Certainly a return to Europe would have been uh, expected. We also don't know what's happened behind closed doors. You mentioned the goals on the pitch, but obviously the disruption off the pitch, and that's what comes with Aubameyang. And of course, that's followed him around his career. Had various um, various issues at Dortmund as well. And I know that uh, you know you cross Arteta at your peril, as we've said on this show. And he's obviously got a very clear idea about the type of players that he wants in the team. You're absolutely right, though. It does leave us incredibly short up front. Obviously, Martinelli can play out front there but he's still a young kid um very impressive one player we of course were linked with was Dusan Vlajevic of the Fiorentina now Juventus man so he's gone to Juve I feel like we were played a little bit and we were used as a bit of a stalking horse for that Juventus deal I don't think he had any intention of coming to Arsenal but we weren't linked with too many other people that's the thing so I think to Edge's point, it's not like we actually missed out. I think it was a lack of a lack of attitude and uh, ambition. Sorry, uh, and I also think it's about clearing the decks. And this is the project that uh, Arteta has been doing since he joined. He, you know, he's been getting rid of fringe squad players. He's now got a massive player off the bill. But yes, you know that is a you know potentially twenty goal a year striker and uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see the big question is I don't know I do not know how Barcelona are affording all of this <laughs> you know I know he got it was a free transfer he is apparently on some significantly reduced wages compared to what he was on at Arsenal and they will grow apparently as as time goes on Barca weren't able to shift uh Dembele on uh he was someone they were desperate to get out the door because his wages are 
clogging up their bill, uh, their wage bill. He was offered to three premiership clubs. I don't know quite know who they were, but he now looks set for uh, PSG in the summer. Of course, the the biggest uh, transfer club uh, were Newcastle, as expected. It wasn't a you know uh, the list of super signings. I know everyone was talking about Mbappe and others at the start. Obviously, Bruno Guimaraes is incredibly. Uh, you know, incredibly impressive player from Leon. He comes in to join Wood and Trippier, who were signed earlier in the window. And of course, they've brought Byrne, the the tallest player uh, in the Premier League, is now coming to their defence. The Matty Target comes in at left back, so they've got a new right back, left back, and centre back, and a new defensive midfielder and a new striker. So. The question is, and a question without notice, will do you, do you like the look of that business? Do you think that's enough to keep them up? When I saw the Chris Wood deal, I thought it was good business, but not for Newcastle. I thought it was great business for Burnley. 31 years old. He's been really good for them, serv- well, more than serviceable at the Premier League. But for $30 million odd, I think it was, Derek, I think that's probably, uh, surely there would have been better, uh, younger, hungrier strikers around uh, than Chris Wood for $30 million. I think they're going through the same process, Willem, as Manchester City. When... When they got their money, it wasn't all. They went. They went through different phases uh, of players. So they weren't buying Aguero uh, and Yaya Torre, for example, at the start. I'm trying to think on my feet about some of the players. Have to go that, through your Roque Santa Cruz phase. Well, yeah, your Roque. Well, that's an exact. That, that, that that's a good one. Uh, I mean, Roque Santa Cruz was a fantastic player in his day, but I think still attracting people to Newcastle, even on the money. I think the Gamara's one is the one that stands out because he was being chased by a host of top European clubs and he's obviously you know taking the taking the money and uh, and and the project uh got to mention uh Eric's Christian Eriksen Brentford briefly that's a great story so you know I remember when we all got on this podcast uh, a few months ago and, and we're all still in shell shock from from what happened in that in that Denmark game and uh, you know De- Brentford's a great club for him to restart his career I think we all Watch that with interest. And the final club that I wanted to mention was Everton, because it's a good segue as well, is <laughs> obviously they've done business. They've bought Delhi Alley. Uh, they've bought Donny van der Beek in as well on loan from Manchester United. Uh, will this make them better? It, it feels to me like they've bought two more flashy players for a squad that already has quite a lot of, you know, flashy centre and midfield players and number 10s. I don't know if they were just buying on reputation rather than, Excuse me. What the uh, what the squad actually needed on paper, and Deli Ali certainly uh, is has not been in good form for a number of years now since he was in that England team going to the World Cup semi final. Donny Van der Beek, we just don't know because he just hasn't had the opportunities at Manchester United, and this is now his opportunity. He'll start every week in the centre of midfield where he wants, and uh, we'll have to see how Lampard. Lampard goes. Uh, and speaking of Lampard, of course, he was appointed between us and uh, between the last show and, and this one, the end of a strange mar- managerial saga. We were talking last week about how Pereira was ruled out the job because of some graffiti on the wall. Big Dunk was interested in the job again. And they've gone with Frank Lampard. Uh, maybe I'll go to go back to you, Edge, on this one. Um you had some glowing things to say about Steven Gerrard when he took over at Aston Villa. Uh, you know, Grant Lampard is his his contemporary, I suppose, and at his age. Uh, can we expect a similar outcome here at Everton? Well, you would think Lampard would have um, 
benefited from the experiences he's had to date. Um, and I think he'll go into the Everton job probably <clears throat> wiser. Um, but for Australian football interests, the takeout for me was that Tim Cahill was brought into the group of people that sat in on the final interviews and deliberations wow. about who they would choose. So there was Lampard and two other coaches apparently at those final meetings. So Tim Cahill was brought in to uh, participate with the club owner um, and the four or five people that were involved in that process. And um, there are um, reports everywhere that he uh, had a big sway in getting Lampard across the line and that he is in line to be appointed as a uh, in a position as, as a technical director at the club. So that is interesting news. I didn't know that Tim Cahill and Frank Lampard were close, but apparently they are. Um, so that's, yeah, really interesting. Um, the Everton project just cannot fail. You know, um, I know Rob will hate me saying this, but the, mm -hmm. the, the blue side of, of Liverpool is just as important as the red side. And um, the, the significance of those matches are... Uh, very important to the DNA and culture of the Premier League. So Everton is a project that can't fail. Uh, and... you, uh, there's no, no way in the world. I think I um, am more inclined to side with the Stephen Warnock view. Remember when we had him on a couple of weeks ago and I sort of tongue-in-cheek asked him or posed that very similar question and uh, and we wrapped it up by talking about the Bramley Dock uh, uh, investment that's going into the, um, the that incredible new stadium on the Mersey. Uh, so, yeah, Everton uh, are... A huge club. Uh, the culture of, of English football um, has so many great derbies, and, and, and one of the greatest of all courses uh, is Liverpool and Everton. So, uh, now I'd, I'd love to see that story return on the proviso that um, they don't finish um, above Liverpool um, on the ladder anytime in the next. Does day, anyone, Willem, Willem, do you think Tim Kale in his uh, career trajectory is destined for a? very senior role in Australian football at some point with the Socceroos. What do you think? I'd hope so. He seems um, relatively occupied and like he's making some pretty great strides at clubs around the world. Obviously, you mentioned the uh, esteem he's still held in an Everton and now at, a, at an administrative level. And also uh, the Belgian club that have just signed uh, Michael Valkanis and Jimmy Jego as well. So there's a little bit of Australian influence uh, starting to come in there. You'd hope that uh, you'd hope that at some point he can return and have an impact with the national team. Uh, Michael, if we've um, if we've got a bit of time left in the show as we come to the close, I wouldn't mind just squeezing in a word for Afcon. You guys know I've been enjoying this tournament thoroughly. We're halfway through the semi-finals. Uh, we're going to have Senegal playing in the final next Monday morning at six a.m. Australian Eastern Time against one of either Egypt or Cameroon. And by the time you listen to this, you'll probably know uh, which of those sides it's going to be. A quick word on each of those sides: uh, Senegal led. Of course, by uh, uh, Sane, uh, had to give it everything really against Burkina Faso. 3-1 uh, win it was, uh, where all four goals came in the last 20 minutes. Uh, Egypt slogged it out with Morocco 2-1, and it was, uh, ret I'm reticent to say it, Rob, because I'm not, I'm not a Liverpool man, and I think he gets too much of a mention on this show, but it was a classic Mo Salah moment late in extra time, uh, just on the right wing there, just dazzling, and took the defenders and the keeper out of it with the pass for the uh, to set up the winner. Uh, and they're not going to have Ahmed Hagazi going forward, though, uh, Derek. So if they do make the final, they won't be without him. And Cameroon, the host side, they beat Gambia 2-0. Uh, they've scored 11 goals in the tournament, five of them to Carl Toko Wakambi, six of them to Vincent Abubakar, and none to anyone else. So certainly a very strong uh, final three as we get to the pointy end of AFCON. 
Well done, Willem. You've uh, been covering that uh, magnificent event uh, brilliantly over the last uh, few weeks and uh, we're all looking forward to the final on Monday morning, uh, whoever it is uh, that uh, faces up against Senegal. Derek, um, Edge uh, and I were sort of bouncing comments uh, around uh, around Canada's performance. We talked about them last week and and the fact that uh, you know they're flexing their muscles now and uh, you know they're one of the uh, the the the, uh, the hidden well um hidden giants uh, the emerging giants uh, of of concacaf uh, and uh, they knocked off uh, the usa during the week it looks like they're going to go through to the world cup as the as the top of the group um comfortably yeah it looks like that well they're definitely in going in the right direction there are still a few games to go but they do have a bit of breathing a room now ahead of the usa usa can still qualify despite despite losing uh this game uh the top three qualify automatically here and the fourth place goes into a playoff so i think um you know we all know that world cup qualifying generally is designed to get this, these sorts of teams in like the usa they managed to somehow not make the last one and we're still trying to work out how that happened but fair play to canada they've got some superstars in their team alfonso davis of course Bayern munich jonathan david uh at lille uh, they haven't been at the world cup since 1986 so uh we were t- talking with uh, you know all things maradona and wady so that, that that kind of sticks out but um you know that that'll be an amazing achievement they've got a long, they've got a english coach who i will admit that i have never heard of uh, in my life uh, john john herdman um he was the women's coach i'm sure michael might know a thing or two about about john herdman but he's now now the men, the, men, the men's coach and a couple of goals there for besiktas striker uh, kyle larin um, he he now becomes the all-time goal scorer for Canada as well, and uh, Sam Adekugbe added a late second there in Ontario. So, you know, oh Canada, it looks like it's going to happen, and certainly going to be an interesting one to to watch if they make it. I just wanted to throw one last one in there. We haven't had a funny story for a while from me, Jensen. I wanted to bring up the fact that UEFA, one of my favourite topics on the show, uh, has decided not to take legal action against a German restaurant and it's Champignons League Pizza. So this is a this is a mushroom p- pizza with a uh, with a Champions League feel. Um, and they now they've now decided, quote, that they can live happily alongside the inventively named pizza. So uh, if you're ever in Germany, Ed, you do travel around with your job, try and find this restaurant and tell us how good it is. Do you like mushroom on your peaches, Rob? Oh, mate, I love mushroom on my pizzas. Pretty much one of my favourites is Silvio's down in Bridge Road at Richmond, which is uh, called the Vesuvio. It has um, hot salami, um, prawns, mushrooms, and always make sure there's a little bit of garlic on it. I know it sounds a little strange, but it is magnificent. The mushrooms just make it. Enough. <laughs> Starting to sound a bit like the uh, the Shane Warne podcast. <laughs> oh, the Shane, Shane Warne had baked what beans on his pizza. Yes, baked beans and um, what's that um, Japanese green drink that he likes? Not sure on that one. Any money anymore? So don't know if he drinks it anymore. No, exactly. Well, I saw him sucking on a can of uh, Jim Beam and Coke at the Tennessee the other day. Very classy, Shane. All right, gentlemen. Uh, with Jim Beam and Coke. That's what he was drinking. Yeah. Yeah. What's What's wrong with it? Well, I didn't say there was anything wrong with it, but I'm just no, saying just that it's... Uh, you, you're suggesting it's not so classy to drink Jim Bean and Coke. I was. I was, actually. I didn't say there was anything wrong with it. I just suggested... Unlike Rob, and Will, as we know, Rob likes the uh, 
Chardonnay out of the tall wine glass in Durack. Oh, God, here it goes. It's been a while since you brought that up, Edge, but uh, yeah, you always... Well, the Guildford boy's made good, and he's got this ginormous mansion in Turak, uh, listeners. So mate, you, you welcome you all in if you just drop by. Just, yeah. a, just a battler from biggest, the Western suburbs, biggest, biggest house in Turak, he's yeah, yeah, exactly, me and uh, and um, Eddie McGuire living side by side as, as the kingpins <laughs> of Melbourne media. <laughs> not all right, boys. Edge, uh, well, mate, you, you're not far away from home. You're in Doha. No, a couple of weeks away from home. Yes, I'm in Doha at the moment, um, which is, um, I mean, <laughs> believe it or not, two days hotel quarantine. So I'm mm. sitting in a hotel room, counting down the hours until I get my rapid antigen test to be let out the door and uh, get on with the rest of the work I need to do. No worries, mate. All right, uh, thank you again for joining us from the other side of the world, Willem. Uh... Better make the bed. What don't you call the um the room service in to get that? Uh, not in quarantine, you're not allowed to. Yeah. Oh god, Edge. Just get it tidy, mate. Tidy tidy bed, tidy mind, tidy That's life. It. That's it. <laughs> well um, well done. Thank you, Rob. I just want to leave you with a quip from Roy Hodgson, the Hodgesaurus. We were a little bit surprised to see him take the job from Watford after his retirement at Crystal Palace, but he said this job was one I was never going to turn down because it was quite literally the siren call from the mermaid as the sailor passes by on his ship. They got the right mermaid going past the right ship. I'll leave you with that one and we'll uh, address it next week when we've worked out what the hell he's talking about. He did, he did do a bit of research. It's a classic uh, piece of literature that he's alluding to. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, this, this, I want you to Maybe I've outed myself as ignorant there. No, well, you just do a bit of homework and uh, and you can educate everyone next week. Derek, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, call from the mermaid. That should be the, uh, the the title of this podcast. Make it make it happen. <laughs> we will. And Damo, thank you again, mate, for making us all sound as good as we possibly can in a week where we've been a little bit gloomy, but um, fortunately, Ange Postacoglu uplifted us towards the end. Uh, and uh, and there is hope. We're going to see the Batildas win the World Cup next year. The Socceroos are going to qualify and all will be well in the world. So uh, hopefully that all eventuates. So thank you again for listening to us. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. Give us a like on Facebook. Facebook and make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.